Jamie, we're here to do Making a Murderer, picking up the pieces from this show. Yes. First of all, my name's Mike on West Coast Project. Hi, Jamie. Hi, Mike. Uh, how many of these have you watched now, Jamie? All of them. <laughs> up to? Up to episode eight. Okay, but tonight we're doing seven. No, we're not. We're doing eight. Mm, no, we're doing seven. We did not do seven yet. Yes, you're right. Seven. You're right. It's seven. Um, Okay, so I still have the television on, and eight is just starting, like, on Netflix. And so I I have that, and I was looking at it. But, yes, you're right. It is seven. So you have the the self-control to not watch ahead once you get to the end of each episode? Yes. Hmm. Well, good for you. (laughs) You don't want to find out how it turns out? I know how it turns out. You told me that he's still in prison. Hey, Jimmy, have you heard of this guy, Stephen Moore? No. He's got a website called More to the Story. Oh, that's nice. And his name's Uh M-O-O-R-E. But um, he's an ex, I think he's an FBI agent or some retired law enforcement dude. And he he talks about the stuff. Does he? And he provides a differing opinion than the people who made the show sometimes provide it's interesting huh anyway i was looking at some of his stuff oh okay this is episode seven framing defense yes um they all blur in together i mean here my notes are like hey there's police cars all over the avery property like how many times do you think i've said that (laughs) in in the other six of our podcasts right you know it has to be like four out of the six (laughs) yeah if not more yes you're right. So, um, November twenty, November two thousand five, police cars all over the Avery property. Yep. And the big deal here is, was Calumet County like who was really in charge of this damn thing? Right. Jerry Pagel from Calumet County, he's the chief, says it's our investigation, but Manitowoc dudes are still all over the place. Right. Exactly. And so we see the father. The Faja of Stephen <laughs> describes it all as a setup. I think I've said that a few times too in our podcast series. Yeah, it's it just seems like you know kind of a, a a repetition here. You know, just the slight details and circumstances change, but the conclusion's always the same. I wish there was an efficient way to just pick out the new, different stuff. Because when you watch it, it seems like it's way more entertaining to watch it than to than to report on it it could be but you know i i think that um there's something about it because like i've listened to our podcasts on this series and actually this is one of the ones i i like the most to listen to and you know it for me it doesn't really make a difference um you know what new material is kind of there because really you know winding our way through it you know we can talk about the injustice of it all but I think there's just like new points of outrage and kind of things that we notice that, you know, are in this episode or that episode that we didn't see before. Like there's one here that was really kind of almost like a, like an epiphany for me. It was a life changing moment, seriously. And we can talk about it when we get there. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was a very, very enlightening episode. 
So, Jamie, what I thought I'd do to make it a little different is um, change my phone ringer so it sounds totally new. No. What I thought I'd do to make it different <laughs> is uh, put this, pull up this guy's Moore's website and kind of weave in some of his takes on stuff as we talk about it. Oh, this is great. I don't know how I'm going to do that, but I'll try. I've got two screens open here. Okay. So um, the good news in this, um, M uh, Michelle, Jamie, Jamie. <laughs> the good news in this, Jamie, is the Manitowoc cops found a key. Case solved. Hi, Mike, hold on a second. Do you know last night when we were recording our podcast for the Americans, you literally asked me what my name was? I know. I did that to be funny. Oh, all right. Because I called you Elizabeth or something. <laughs> okay. All right. So now you're calling me Michelle. That's always a good way to get off the hook when you make a mistake with somebody's name. You should know, like, dead stone cold. What's yeah. your name again? It's yeah, not that's a literal a question. It's being a smart ass. Yeah, okay, so it's a good way to make somebody mad at you, though. Uh, only if they don't get the joke. Yeah, okay. <laughs> All right, Jamie, the good news is the Manitowoc cops found a key. case is going to be solved now, right? Right. No, they weren't even supposed to be there. Yes. And it's amazing, right, how all these coincidences happen when Manitowoc County's there. All these good, fortunate prosecutorial coincidences yes. happen. That's correct. So we get the credits right after that. So the credits, Jamie, I thought were very true detective-like. Like, I don't know if the, I don't know the time sync of how this show, when it was being produced, how it synced up with either season one or two of True Detective. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's a kind of a detective-y show, and then True Detective was a huge hit. And it, it wouldn't surprise me if they said, hey, this True Detective show is really cool hit. Let's be cool like them and make some of our graphics like, like they do. Well, I don't know because I don't remember the, the, um, the, the what do they call it, credits, the opening credits for, um, for True Detective, the second season. I haven't seen the first season. But I was really impressed uh, by the opening of this episode, it was really beautiful. Um, did, I, do they all change like the the openings? Because I don't remember anything before being impressive and nice. I think about they might have. I don't remember. I don't. Know. We asked the same question about the Americans on our other podcast. Right. <laughs> by the way, Jamie, there is a, there is a True Detective podcast on the West Coast Project Syndicate, so you can look in our catalog and find that. Mike. I know that. I substituted for Michelle. Well, maybe for some other people that are listening that might not know that, Jamie. Oh. So okay. when I tell you, I'm talking to the world. <laughs> okay, world, I'm sorry. <laughs> All right, so we drive up to the Avery trailer, and then inside, and we look at the bedroom, and, um, and then it cuts to the courtroom. The Calumet deputy is on the stand, and he says, I, don't, I can't remember which deputy this was, but there were never Manitowoc deputies alone in the residence. Right. Um, but Link and Coburn and all the cronies were were there in and out of that place. Mm -hmm. And Buting grills him. I forget. Do you remember who was in this scene? I can't remember. I didn't write it in my notes. And I watched this a few days ago. It's it starts with Jerry Buting. Um, there's not very much that Dean Strang does um, during this particular um, episode. So most of the um, the questioning. Um, and in court this particular day is done by Jerry Beauty. Yeah, but who's he talking to? 
Um, he was talking to um, one of the sheriffs, I guess sheriff's deputies or whatever those guys are, and I can't remember his name. Um, I mean, it wasn't Link, um, not not yet. Um, not Coburn or somebody else. Oh, All right, wait. doesn't matter. Um, let's see. I'm looking for him. Sorry. So next we see. So he he kind of says. No, they weren't there by themselves, but Buting grills them and gets them to admit that, but they were there a lot. And so what this Moore guy says, the three things he needs to, you know, the three important points of this episode is that was Kelly met the only primary investigating agency who really had access to the evidence in the evidence room? And then what do we make of this blood test? Those are the three big points of this episode. Yeah. All right, so next next we see Kratz talking to Kuchar, Deputy Kucharski. Maybe that was who it was, Kucharski. Um, oh, yes. I, actually, I think that's exactly who it was. Is that the guy with, like, one bad eye? He looks like a lummox. He looks like a big dopey goofball. <laughs> he looks like a dope. Are you talking about... I don't know. I don't know. Are you talking about the guy who's on the jury, or are you talking about because oh, there's the deputy one of the... on the stand that that Kratz is talking to? I don't think he had a weird eye. Mm-mm. Yeah, there's one guy with a bad eye that makes him look stupider than he than he was. <laughs> okay, I don't but know. This deputy that Kratz, uh, I'm losing the word. To, when you get somebody to testify, interrogates. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's interrogating him or cross-examining him. Or okay. exam- yeah. What's the friendly one? When you're the uh, prosecution and you're talking to a prosecution witness. Oh, um, deposing? Or, mm. uh, I don't know, well, questioning? It's, it's a prosecution witness, and he claims there's no opportunity to plant the key. It's impossible that we had no key. And then he gets an objection from either Buting or, or the other guy. Who's the other guy? Strang. Yeah, but this uh, is Buting. Uh, it's impossible. And then he says, okay, it's possible. Aliens could have done it. Right. <laughs> now, Buting comes back on and says, okay, we're aliens in the room. Mm-hmm. You got to remember this guy looks like a, he looks like a big lummox, this guy he's, he's getting to testify. So he, he's saying stupid things and he looks stupid. <laughs> right. And he's got like the, the wavering eye. Okay. <laughs> I didn't notice his eyes. I think so. his name's Kucharski. So he's like a big, you know, big lummox of a guy. Mm-hmm. Um, so were aliens in the room then, Detective Kucharski? No. <laughs> then it wasn't, then it really wasn't possible that an alien could do it, was it? I don't understand. Let's, then Buting's like, okay, let's try this again. It never occurred to you that Buting just rips him apart. He just makes this guy look like a total moron. Never occurred to you that an officer would plant evidence? No. <laughs> um, and then Strang, they do, they do both talk to people, Strang and Buting, because the other one has Lank on the stand. And yes, he, does, yeah. he does do like one. Yeah. He asked him if he was in the bedroom for the third time. Did you look in the bookcase? And he says, I glanced and you didn't see the key. No, I didn't see the key. Wait, hold on. During that line of questioning that 
Kucharski or whatever that guy's name is, um, when Buting was still questioning him, he said a couple of things that um, were interesting to me. Like when he asked him, did it ever, did it never occur to you that a law enforcement officer would plant evidence? And he said, no. And then he says, was not on your radar, was it? And then he says, no. And um, Buting says, um, now what we what we do know is that when you came into the bedroom uh, for the first time, there was no key on the floor, was there? And then he says, that's correct. And then he says, the theory then is that this key and the cloth fob <laughs> and the plastic buckle somehow managed to walk out that back corner and around the side and lay there, <laughs> right? <laughs> And then that crazy, awful um, uh, prosecutor attorney, he says that he objects to it. Kratz. Yeah, that awful dude. Yeah, so, um, yeah, he's sarcastic to the guy. Okay, mm-hmm. so the key walked away from the shelf and walked into the room and put, laid itself down. I mean, he made it sound as ridiculous as it really was to find that key. He made it made the reason it got there as ridiculous sounding. That's correct. Pretty good attorney attorneying there. Yes, it was. I ve- I was really impressed with both of them this episode. Yeah, so we've said that a bunch of times too. Like Strang and Buting are heroes. They're totally good at. They're they're fighting such an uphill battle though that it doesn't doesn't matter. Yeah, I mean it's it's. You know, and I mean, you can see them admitting that is in this episode. You know, they're they're basically saying so much more now than they've ever said um, in this whole series about the 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 peril that they're that they're under. And 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 actually, that was the word that um, Jerry Buting used when he kind of you know. Um, kind of derisively said, you know, and imitated, um, you know, the voice of, you know, whomever of authority saying, if you take on the police, you take them on at your peril. Um, so, you know, there, it really, this whole episode has kind of been um, a series of moments of um, victory, right, where these men have clearly proven something. And moments of really, you know, feeling that they're under the gun and feeling this miscarriage of justice happening and kind of hanging over their heads um, because no matter what they do, it just seems as though they can't get any traction. It's interesting how the producers of this series show the courtroom, you know, when Stirring and Buting are in court, they're, they're, they're obligated to follow the rules. They have to be, they can be sarcastic and make it sound silly and stupid, but when they're in front of the cameras, they just say what they really think. And they intercut these scenes, you know, shortly after the, the um, testimony, they intercut what they're saying to the press in this out-of-court back room. Mm-hmm. And String and Buting just say, look, that key does not fall sideways out of the book stand into perfect position. They planted it. They knew it was a lawsuit situation and they had to do something and that's what they did. That's right. So we get the we get the court version, the theatrical version, and then the real nuts and bolts, no frills version from the press room. That's right. Uh, so and they also catch these guys in a bunch of lies, like back in court, Buting is talking to Link, and he says, "You volunteered for this, right?" And Link says, "No, we were asked to to work here." And then he reads something from the past that states that Link was volunteering. 
And um, it, I don't know, it's just it's just interesting how they catch them and all this stuff, and it and it still doesn't matter. It was one of those moments, actually, and I guess it's coming. I don't want to really jump ahead, but um, I want to talk about um, the log that they were keeping when they were out there at the property. Um, and do you know how far away that is? Are, are we getting to that? It's coming up. I, I remember okay. writing some notes about it. Okay. All right. So, yeah, let's keep rolling. So we get the indignant Kratz now, and Kratz is the same opportunity to talk in that press room and the media room kind of without the frills and protection of the court. And he just says, look, look, dudes, don't accuse officers of planting evidence unless you don't have evidence that they did that. Like it's a threat. Don't right. do not do this unless you have crystal clear evidence. When, in fact, the law is, you know, you got to prove somebody's guilty, not prove that they're innocent. But they're, but Strang and Buting are unfortunately pr- saddled with proving that Stephen Avery's innocent. That's right. Not not that he's not guilty. Which should be an indication, right there to anyone, to anyone who's witnessing this, that this is an unfair trial. I mean, it's it's crazy to me that uh, you know that this this thing it, that no one took any note of it. And, and it seems to me as though a lot of the press that was in that press room, um, this particular episode, um, a lot of the press was very supportive of the prosecution. Didn't you think so? The press was supportive of the prosecution? Yeah, I felt like that, this episode, that there were a lot of members of the press in the press room who were asking questions that were kind of leading questions for the prosecution, for um, Kratz and um, and the officers of the law that were involved in the case who would go and answer questions later. Um, like there was a lot of kind of leading kind of stuff where um, they would ask a question just because they wanted to hear, you know, the the person who was on the at the mic say something negative you know, about uh, Avery or the, the defense. Yeah, maybe. I didn't, get, I didn't catch that. I didn't pick that up, that the press was more on the prosecution, prosecution side than normal. Because they're usually, they're like incredulous that this, how did this get through? How did, the, how did that message to the jury get, like they're on the defense side? Right, that's right. Always. Yeah, no, yes, normally that's what the case is. But this time I noticed um, that it wasn't really quite like that. And, uh, you know, there were, I think, like one or two questions that seemed neutral. But besides that, it was a lot of it was just very much in the case of the prosecution. So, Jamie, in the forums and in the comments of those forums, of many forums, the preponderance of the content is about the people associated with Stephen. And one of the peop- one of the persons that produces the most emotional uh, amount of comments is Mama, Mama Avery. And the next scene, we see her making biscuits in her, all alone in her kitchen. And we hear Stephen on the phone lamenting how he's in the same situation that he was in before. But the yeah. pictures of this mother <laughs> are so forlorn and sad. Uh, that I mean, I, I'm sorry. I can see why they produce all these comments from people. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, this lady, we've talked about her. She is the very picture of tragedy. And, you know, her face, just her face itself, you know, looks tragic and, you know, worn by the world. And 
you know, and, and when you realize the kind of suffering, you know, that this woman is doing, it just makes, it makes me emotional because, you know, these people, they just, they don't have much and they are in the position of having to take on the government really, you know, and there's just no place for them to find support. It's just, it's terrible. And, you know, I wish that there were a way for that lady to express herself. And, you know, and then in a way, her facial expression, just the way that she looks, really, I, I think it probably speaks more than her voice probably could. Yeah, I wonder if it's better to be intelligent in this situation or, or kind of kind of unintelligent, like these people all kind of seem to be. Well, the sympathy, certainly, that, you know, it is for the person who's just suffering, suffering quietly. And I, I think that's what's happening here. Yeah, I guess they maybe they're spared some of the irony of it. If you're not super intelligent, you can't pick up on it. You're just like, oh, I got stuck with another damn dumb deal. And I, I got to live with it. But I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's worse that you can't. It's obviously it's clearly worse for strategy wise that you can't say, look, I'm not going to answer that. That's, you know, you didn't read me my rights or I don't feel that's a fair question to answer without my lawyer next to me. So that's bad. But I wonder if it's just better to be kind of kind of numb to it or, or to know everything about it. Well, I think that certainly um, it would be maddening. Um, really, really, truly, um, psychologically uh, scarring more deeply than it is for somebody who's not quite as bright, for someone to um, have their full faculties and be able to see all the nuances um, that are there and to perceive, uh, you know, the dishonesty and the um, manipulation and the the lies, the outright lies um, that go against you and, you know, and, and the, the, what it would do to a person's selfhood, you know, what it would do to a person emotionally, mentally to start thinking about the reasons why something like this might happen to them in particular. Um, you know, so, I mean, you go from a place of um, just going through these sort of um, mechanical processes and having injustice dealt to you, you know, to a place where, you know, you be, you become, you know, philosophical about it and have existential questions and spiritual questions about what's happening to you. And I think that that is more torturous. I think so, too. Like, this is, this it's Kafkaesque. It's like such a circle. Like, how could this, here I am right back in jail again. It might be better just to say, well, I don't know how this happened, but I guess I'm stuck here. It's better to have that numbness than to know all the details and the total deep irony of it. Yeah, I think you're right, too. All right, so back in court, Kratz is now talking to Coburn. And Coburn's important in this episode because he's the one who took the call years back about how we may have another guy in jail who might have done this crime. Yeah, this was fascinating to me. So I, he's not talking about that yet, but he's the guy that ultimately talks about that. So it's Kratz, yeah. the prosecutor, and Coburn. And he's asking him about Teresa, talking to Stephen about Teresa on the property. And so Coburn says, I asked Stephen if Teresa came out to his property. And Stephen said yes to take pictures. Mm-hmm. And um, 
I asked Stephen if she, she said where she was going, and he said he never really talked to her. She was only there five minutes. Chris. Yeah, 10 minutes to take pictures of a van that Stephen's sister wanted to sell. Right. Well, that yeah, because that's essentially their business, junkyard, right. get, get a car in, sell a car, sell parts, all that. Mm -hmm. So she had been there before. Kratz asked Coburn if he searched the bedroom, and Coburn says yes with Kucharski and Link. So remember, Kucharski's a Calumet guy, and Link is a Manitowoc guy. That's so right. So there's Link already in the, in the mix already. Mm-hmm. Kratz asked him if he touched the key, and Coburn says no. And then he asked him about the call, Jamie. So Kratz says, tell us about your dep deposition in 1995 when you got the call. And Coburn says, we got a call. I got a call that said from somebody that said, we may have someone here who could have been guilty of the crime, and I transferred it to the detectives. And Kratz asked him, did you know that call was about Avery? Coburn says, No. And then Kratz closes this out with, did you plant blood or other evidence against Stephen Avery? Coburn says, no. And this is the first time my integrity has ever been questioned. He's all indignant. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I thought, you know, he seemed, um, there, there, was, there was a veracity to um, what he was saying. And so even though on the surface it seemed completely unbelievable, the expression that he had and the way that he um, appeared, you know, and the way that he spoke was a contrast because it, he seemed believable, you know, from that perspective, even though I don't believe a word he said. Yeah, Coburn was, as, Coburn was least, less slimy than some of the other people. Yes. But he's weasley. He's less weasley. Yes. Uh, so Strang comes right up after Kratz, the friendly, the prosecutor, talking to Coburn. Uh, Strang crosses him and says, um, so this is the first time your integrity's ever been questioned? Again, kind of the sarcastic, like, like smirky, you know, first time? You sure? It's the first time it's ever been questioned? And Coburn says, well, yes, as it applies to being a police officer. Right. So he qualifies it. Um, and Strang says, it's not the first Mr. Avery's ever uh, it's not the first time Mr. Avery's reputation's ever been questioned, so I have some questions for you. So he kind of, the, so smart, man. He's <laughs> so smart. Yeah, I like that. Um, and he says, so no, on November 3rd, when you first learned Miss Hallback was missing, was just three weeks after your deposition in the Avery lawsuit. Like, so he's connecting the lawsuit to the reason that this crime might be being pushed forward over Stephen. Right. He says, yes, that's right. And he says, Strang says, as shift commander, you could have assigned anyone to go on road patrol on Avery Road. Yes, that's right. But you did it alone yourself, or you did it yourself alone. Yes, that's right. Um, so Strang says, well, when did you make this written report? And um, he answers eight months later. So. Yes, it was, yes. It was about the, uh, the phone call where the detective uh, called and said, we have somebody here. Um, that is guilty of a crime, um, and we think that he's guilty of the crime of the guy, a guy that you have in your jail, and he could be an innocent guy. And that story stayed in um, Colburn's head for un until eight months after um, 
eight months later when uh, Steve Avery was released. All right, Jamie. So Strang and Buting have their own investigator, Paul Batts, and he now has spoken to, um, I can't remember if he's on the stand or in the press room, but he says there's definitely a conflict of interest in this case. Um, they committed themselves, the, the prosecutorial people, the police and the I guess both Calumet and Manitowoc, they committed themselves to proving the crime, not finding the evidence. Oh, wow. This guy was cool, this Paul Batts. I think I guess that was probably off record, not in the court, because that would have been objected over and left and right, over and under, everywhere, every which way. Well, I didn't hear him say that. Yeah. I, I didn't hear him say that. That's amazing. All right, now, so now straying to Coburn again. There was no time you were ever in Avery's home when you were not with Link? No. So Coburn was, Link was attached to this guy's side. <laughs> there was never a time in the Avery's home w when you were not with Link. Link was there all the time. Mm -hmm. So is this the largest case in your career? Yes. And it had thousands of pages? Yes. And your report was one half of a page long? Yes. <laughs> were there things you did not want to commit to paper? No. He says no. And um, Strang says, did you ever write a report about the phone call suggesting that you might have the wrong guy in jail? Nope. Right. And Strang says, well, yes, you did. Eight years later, the day Stephen Avery walked out of prison. Exactly. So we said eight months later before. it Was yeah. that eight years? Yeah. We should have said yes. eight years. I, yes, I think it was eight years. Right. Eight That's years. the sin of it. He held on to it while the guy sat in jail for eight freaking years. Yes. And, and, and when he asked him about that and said, you know, it was when um, Steve Avery walked out of jail, that's when you um, decided to write it down. He said, well, I can't remember what day he got out of jail. Right. It's <laughs> a measly, weasley excuse. Yeah. Horrible. And it was to cover his ass, too. Like, oh, yeah, we, here's for the record. We got this call back then. And, you know, we made a record of it, but it didn't ever amount to anything. Right. He's just, he's disgusting. All the people in this situation are disgusting. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, what kind of person do you have to be to let someone sit in jail for almost a decade when you could have said something? Yeah, think about it. I mean, use the, use the Harvard in-basket on it. Just think about letting somebody sit in jail for one night, overnight, much less eight years. Yes, it's just... I don't know how these people live with themselves. I really don't. Um, okay, Kratz now says, if you, had written a port, if you had written a report in 1985, what would it have been about? And Coburn says, no idea. I wrote reports every day. If I wrote reports for every day, for every call, I'd be writing them all day long. Right. And, and here's the thing that's so horrible. If he felt like that, if he felt that it wasn't important enough to write a report about, why'd he do it eight years later on the day that Stephen Avery got out of jail? Right. Well, we know the reason why, but the, but the logical reason why doesn't exist. Right. So Strang jumps. So Kratz, here's Kratz trying to say, well, if you had to write a report, what would it have been about? Trying to make it sound inconsequential. Like there was nothing to write about. There was nothing. It was just a a call. If I wrote a report about every call, I'd be writing reports all day long. Right. But Strang doesn't let him get away with this. He jumps in and he says, hmm, that's interesting. How many calls have you gotten from another officer suggesting you have the wrong guy in jail? <laughs> and Colburn says, I can't remember ever having any other calls like that. 
Right. It was so amazing. I loved that so much. I, I love those guys. They amaze me because they ask the kind of questions that like people who watch courtroom dramas want to ask and that the kinds of questions that never get asked in a trial. These guys ask those questions. Right. And we have a window to it. Yes. Pretty amazing. All right, Jamie, so here's the media room. I have some notes on this. Maybe we can figure out your comment about how the media seem to be leaning on the prosecutor's side. Mm. So the Babe reporter that I pointed out before, the really hot one, asked this this question. So these cops have to bear the pain of their family seeing them being bad cops. That's, you know, that's bad, right? And Strang says that pain pales to that of Stephen Avery's. Right. Um, Because nobody believes him. Everybody believes the cops or everybody wants to believe the cops are innocent. Right. Nobody is on Stephen Avery's side. Yes. And then this reporter asked, well, where's the evidence of this conspiracy? Uh, And Strang says, you're seeing it. I've seen more at the federal level. So he's used to seeing this type of stuff. Well, you know what the... um I think this is the point where you're talking about where the journalist says, um, are you trying to um, to prove what was the word? Not collusion. Um, oh, that gosh, this I can't think of the word. Um, like, are you tr- basically trying to prove um, that, you know, that this was um, collusion, basically? And um, Strang said. I've seen um, things at the federal level that have gone down for less than what we have here. So basically, you know, he's saying this is more than enough evidence to prove, you know, a conspiracy. Yeah, it's it's so obvious what it is. Sorry. So obvious what it is. Exactly. So Buting now, away from everybody, I think I might be in the car, just nearby the cameraman, says the defense, this defense case actually looks pretty good. Um, he's, he's actually pleased at this point, even though it's a tough hill, it's a tough uphill climb. He's somewhat pleased. Um, Kratz talks to another cop about the RAV4. He claims to not having, not seeing Link or Coburn. Uh, but then Strang gets him to admit that he had no log until later. This is the log you were talking about. Yes. Um, yes. And then he reports later seeing two individuals approaching the area. Yes. Okay. So, um, Lank blew my mind in in this um, scene because okay, so they were they were questioning the uh, other officer before that about the log and asking him when he started keeping the log, what time was it, and they were arguing back and forth about you know was it two o'clock, was it two forty five, what time was was it. And apparently this officer had taken out, he said, his little notebook from his pocket, his front pocket on his shirt and started, you know, writing notes. But then later on, um, like 245, he started a formal log and uh, all these officers and people who were out there on the on the scene were signing in and out. That's what you're doing when you have one of those paper logs. People sign in and out. And then when they start questioning Lank, um, you know, they ask him about that. And he says that he arrived on the scene at 2 o'clock or 2.05 in the afternoon. Meaning, and this is what's so brilliant, like, Buting is 
question. You don't know it until later, but he's just putting the noose around this guy's neck because what this guy thinks is that if he says he arrived there at 2 o'clock or 2.05, that it's certainly earlier than 2.45, which is the testified time that they started the log. So then his name wouldn't have to be on it. Right. Yeah, so this guy you're talking about is Fassbender. He's, he's kind of interesting, Jamie, because he looks like a decent guy. Mm-hmm. He actually kind of looks like Stan on The Americans. He reminds me of Stan. He looks like a decent guy, like he'd be a good guy, like he's not going to lie. Right. But yeah, Buting gets to him and digs deep and he says, did it bother you that it was in this case might have had some control, might have been in the control of the officers who had the conflict of interest. And Fassbender says no. And then he then he goes through that conversation about the log that you just described. You know, everyone should sign the log. Yes, everyone signs the log. And then then he shows Buting shows in court that Link signed out, like you said, but never signed in. Mm hmm. So um, we get the we get a cutaway from all this court stuff. Now we see Mike Michael Halbach, the brother of Teresa, right? And he comments, "This guy is so unlikable." I mean, he's the poor brother of the murdered girl, so gotta feel a little sorry for this guy. But I feel zero. Uh, I just I don't have any affection for this guy. No, me either. He says, "Oh, I'm not concerned about the case. Uh, there may have been improprieties in the case. I'm not worried about that. They got the right guy." Like, why wouldn't you be concerned? You just want anybody to get the axe for your sister's murder? Don't you want the right person to get it caught? Yeah. I mean, we talked about that before. I don't get it either. I I don't know. It it, it feels to me, you know, like these people are just not reasonable people. I don't know what the hell. I don't know if it's in the water. I don't know if those folks have lead poisoning. I don't know if there's something that they have power lines or something. There's something wrong with these people. I mean, they have such a skewed view and understanding of the world around them, and particularly when it comes to that family. But remember in the first episode of this documentary series, they talked about the Averys, and they said that these people were kind of like outcasts in the community. They didn't fit in because they were really kind of um, like, uh, what do they call it? They kept to themselves they were kind of isolated. They um, didn't do the same kinds of, you know, livelihoods. They didn't have the same kinds of, um, you know, ways of earning money that the rest of the community had, which was kind of like, I think, farming and, you know, stuff like kind of that, like around this kind of earthy, kind of not even blue collar kind of, you know, out there um, in the nature kind of jobs. Yeah, it's agricultural and they hunt their own food and Right. Okay. So even though the Averys do hunt, they had this, you know, auto salvage business and they had their own road, you know, named after their family. And so the community around them already saw them as outsiders and they didn't like them, you know, and I think this is part of why we see this focus. Yeah, they're on the wrong side of the tracks. I mean, unfortunately, it's a prevalent bias in our country that people sometimes get viewed as being from the wrong side of town and they're automatically bad people or unlikable undesirable people yeah you know, i don't want to associate with those with those averys right but um yeah it's sad it's so awful. there's more talk about the login process jimmy i don't know if we want to double back over what we just talked about but um 
Link is on the stand with Kratz, first with the prosecutor Kratz. I don't recall, he says, I don't recall the login process. I had no contact with the SUV and I never put blood in it, planted blood in it. And then Link is on the stand with Strang and he says, and then he goes through the log thing. So you said you arrived at 205 before there was a log? Yes, that's right. But the subject of when you arrived came up before in this case, yes? And you told us 6.30 or 7 o'clock. Well, yes. Well, that makes it harder to explain why you didn't sign in, doesn't it? Again, he just kind of leaves this little smarky, snarky comment that you said told us before you were there, you know, at a time when you should have signed in. Right. And that, that was the thing that blew my mind because I was watching this dude. I was watching Lank on the stand. I was looking at his face and his facial expressions. I was listening to his tone, you know, the tone that was in his voice. I was listening to how respectful he was. Yes, sir. No, sir. Um, that kind of stuff. I never would have imagined. And I, I, while I was watching it, I was thinking, this guy's got to be telling the truth. I'm looking for the signs of lying. I'm looking for them and I don't see them. And I was thinking, you know, I wonder, and all this was going through my head while I was watching him testify, I was, I, I was thinking, I wonder what would happen if we could see behind the veil, if we had some sort of method of detecting lies, what would we see, you know, if we could subject this man's testimony to it? And before I could finish my thought, here came Buting with this timeline saying, you already testified that you got there around six or seven at night. And then when he said that, it blew my mind because I've always thought that I'm a pretty good judge of not only character, but of truth. Like when people are lying, I could, I've always thought I can usually tell, and I do, I mean, like I can tell, but this guy, I had no clue. Hmm. And just think of all of the things Buting and Strang had to do to dig all that up, to prove, to find those things out so they could wait for the right moment in court and then pull it out. Aha, you, but you, you showed up at 6 o'clock, right, and, get, and catch them all in this. Yes, and that was amazing to me because it just made him look like such a freaking liar. And all he could say was, yes, like, yes, I did. You got say- me. Okay, you got me. <laughs> yeah. All right. So later on, away from the uh, away from the courtroom, Buting says the public was told Manitowoc was not involved, and yet they were all over everything in this case. Just given yep. the raw the raw dog facts about it, and then they proved that Link knew about Avery's blood being logged into evidence from the very first case, and they show pictures of it in that sloppy box with the with the tape all ripped apart. Right. Um, and this is important because if Link knows there's blood from before, he knows he can get to it and maybe use it again. That's right. Um, and so Buting shows us this, or the, the producers show us this sloppy box, but then Buting proves this by interviewing the clerk and showing the pictures of it. That's right. And he gets the clerk to admit that the cops had keys to everything, the Manitowoc people. Yeah. Had keys to all those rooms and access to the cage and all that stuff. Right. They could get it, yes. And they could get in there any time of day or night. During the week or the weekend or time off, it doesn't matter. All right, Jamie, Mama Avery again. Mm -hmm. This time the press, the press looks really bad in this aspect of it. They swarm all over her, visiting Stephen in jail and then leaving. Yeah, and then she's saying, like, where can I go? I can't see. You know, because they're around her. 
you know, so badly bothering her and trying to get her to say something, she couldn't even see to walk to get her to her car. Yeah, in the snow. and uh, That's crazy. It's awful. All right, so now we're going to learn a little bit about this EDTA. I can't remember how much we've already talked about this in p- past podcasts, but String and Buning show kind of how it works. Um, EDTA is used in evidence, in blood specimens and evidence to, to preserve it. Right. So it, if they find EDTA in blood, it, it means it was planted because it was taken from the vial that they used to preserve it. Right. That's correct. But there's no test for EDTA, the presence of EDTA. Right. Until the state gets the FBI to create a test to determine if there's EDTA. Yes. On an amazingly fast timeline, because originally it was supposed to take like months and months or years or something um, to develop this test. And then all of a sudden (laughs) it it can happen in weeks (laughs) and did. So they test the blood drops that they found in the Rev4 and it shows no EDTA. But what they never do is they never test the blood from the vial to see if there's no EDTA. TA present in that, like it's worn out or, you know, it's evaporated or whatever. Well, okay. So the EDTA is not supposed to wear out or, or, you know, evaporate or go bad or anything. The, the reason why it's in the blood vials is to preserve the blood so that it doesn't degrade. So it's, it's a stable, um, uh, um, uh, additive, right? But the thing is, and this is this is why they put that. Um, what did she call herself? An analytical chemist or something? They put that woman on the stand because they they okay. So they questioned um, the the FBI agent, the guy who um, actually tested um, the swabs, three swabs, and found that there was no EDTA on the swabs. And so it looks really, you know, damning. So then the next scene we see is Buting questioning this analytical chemist or what, whatever she was. And he's saying to her, um, you know, didn't, um, oh, no, no, no. He, he first Buting questions that the FBI guy. And he says, you tested these three swabs, but you didn't test the other three swabs. There were six. And so, and the, uh, the FBI agent says, Yes, that's right. I didn't, I didn't test those. And so Buting says, well, so how can you know whether there was EDTA on those swabs? And he says, well, I, I can know. It's, I mean, I'm, it's a reasonable assumption or something like that, he said. And then the next scene we see, there's the analytical chemist lady. And what we find out in her te- through her testimony is that it doesn't quite work the way that it, you would think in your mind. If they find EDTA on, um, in blood, in a blood sample, then it was definitely taken from a vial instead of coming like free-flowing blood from a person. But if you don't find it, that doesn't mean that it didn't come from a vial of blood. It doesn't, it doesn't follow that if you have one, that the opposite is true. Because there are levels 
for detection of EDTA. And if they didn't test for within that level, then they would not have been able to detect it. And so the fact that they only tested three swabs, they didn't test the full um, sample that was taken, and that all they could say is that they didn't detect it, that doesn't mean very much of anything at all. Right. One fascinating thing the prosecution is able to do, Jamie, is produce this constant string of characters that are so despicable. And so this guy, Norm, let's talk about him. This is Norm in the prosecution room now, or in the press room, talking about the day in court. And the press asks him, so is this vindication? And he says, absolutely, this was an awful accusation. It's despicable and dastardly to accuse our law enforcement of this. So he makes it like, oh, absolutely, this proves everything is exactly the way we said it. Right. And then Strang and Buting in their car driving give us the kind of the take you just said that look how quickly the FBI got to, got to them to give them exactly what they needed. Mm -hmm. um, and yet when Stephen needed their work, it took months and months. And hopefully the jury will see this imbalance. Um, it, it doesn't have to be framing, but it is. They're creating it. They're creating this you know, guilty case. That's right. All right, so this guy LeBeau, this, the FBI guy name is LeBeau. Um, he's got that dopey square mustache. Yeah. <laughs> he's on the stand, and Buting gets a hold of him now. Yep. And he says, if there was a corrupt cop, it would be illegal, and you would need to ferret it out. Is this correct? And LeBeau says, yes. Uh, and he gets LeBeau to read the purpose of their services. The purpose of the request is to find out that there was no EDTA in the sample. So... <laughs> The police gave the direction to the FBI guy, LeBeau, the purpose of us asking you to do this is to find that there was no EDTA in this sample. They tell him what they want him to do. Mm -hmm. And then he says, okay, now show me where we're looking for a corrupt cop. And they say, and LeBeau says, well, there is none. And he, Buting says, are any of these crimes federal crimes? And LeBeau says, no. FBI guy, LeBeau, says no. So then what's your purpose for being here? You're, you're here to vindicate local cops. Why is the FBI involved on something that's not a federal issue? Mm -hmm. Bullshit. Yes, exactly. I mean, it's just so contrived. You could not make this up. All right. So then, then they get to the lady you were talking about, this other lady, uh, the auditor. Um, and she says, if it's there, it's there. If it's not there, you simply may not have detected it. Right. So that's exactly what you said. Yeah. All right. So string and beauty do their job, but it still doesn't matter. It's all talk. They talk about this in the in their car again. Um, they're worried about the jury. Is the jury really going to be unbiased and impartial? And more importantly, are they smart enough to understand all this? Which clearly, I don't think that most juries are. Yeah. Well, we know this jury isn't. So the state rests its case. Pretty good, Jamie. We've got uh, three more episodes, and the state's resting its case. So we're going to get the answer here, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the defense files to dismiss the false imprisonment charge, the last charge from the dopey Brendan Dassey story uh, that they, they shackled, raped, stabbed, strangled, shot, murdered. and Cut her hair. <laughs> but that charge is dismissed. So that's good. They get they get yeah. back to where they were in square one. Literally could not believe it. 
could not believe that the judge actually dismissed it. Um, and then the press, again, with Buting and Strang, um, or Strang and Buting to the press, I guess, they say, how do you unring that bell? And they answer, you can't. It's just like before. You can't unring this bell. It's like out there. Uh, and these charges should have never been there in the first place. That's right. So these are charges that are dismissed, they're talking about, that they had this poor girl, they did all these things and chained her to the bed, and oh, no, no, I guess they didn't do that. But you can't unring that to the public. No, you can't. I mean, there's no way to get it out of people's heads, even if the judge orders them not to consider those bits of evidence when they uh, deliberate, there's just no way to get it out of their heads. So Stephen speaks, he's in court, and he has to state to the judge about whether or not he wants to testify, Jamie. Right. Um, and he says, well, the judge says to him, it's your decision to testify or not, it's up to you, not your lawyer, it's totally up to you. And Stephen answers, I'm an innocent man, and I will not testify. Mm -hmm. Do you think he should have testified, Jamie? No. No, I don't. Um, it, you know, if he were another person, in the same circumstance, perhaps, but it's almost never a good idea for a defendant to testify. And particularly in this case, with Stephen Avery having the IQ that he has and being so hated by his um, so-called peers, you know, I don't see any benefit in it. I think that the prosecution would have said one or two things, you know, that were either um, misleading or um, unfairly... Inflammatory, yeah, gotten him mad. Right, and, and it would have made him look even worse. Yeah, so the only thing I'll say about this is that, of course, from armchair quarterbacking, after we know that he's, he's in jail today, as we comfortably sit and podcast about this, that, yeah, maybe, maybe you should have let him testify, because who knows what would happen. But the only thing I'll say about that is he, he has had a very consistent story throughout all of, his, all of his travails here with both crimes. He's given the same answers to everybody, staunchly. He's, he's an idiot, but he gives the constant story consistently. Yes, he does. So, I don't and know. He does, he does it because it's the truth. This guy... Kretz would have ripped I, him open for sure, but who knows? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad uh, that he didn't. You know, because I, I, I don't imagine that anything good could have come from it. So, we get to Mike Halbach, the press, the brother, says to him, what do you think about Stephen not testifying? And he snarkily says, he likes to talk. He would have liked being on the stand. And if you're innocent, you testify. Right. Everything I've heard him say has not been the truth. Yeah. Um, he got out once. He probably thinks it'll happen again. I don't think so. Huh? And he laughs a little bit at the end of that. What the hell, man? <laughs> Your sister's dead. You need to get the right freaking guy in jail for it, not any guy. Right. Anybody will do. Is that, is that really what we're down to here? Something weird about this guy. I oh, mean, the brother? It can't be. It just can't be. Uh, we got any. He believes that this guy is really guilty. He well, you know, I think that um, I think Buting was saying something like that. He said, um, you know, they set him up, but it's not like they think that they're setting up. They thought that they were setting up an innocent man. They think Stephen Avery is guilty. And so they are doing everything that they can 
to elicit a guilty verdict. And, you know, whether they're being fair or not, they look at it as creating justice. Yeah, I, I think some people believe he's guilty. Like, I think this idiot Mike Hallback believes he's guilty. And I think some people are creating the guilt. They're making the murderer. And mm-hmm. that's, the pro- that's the law, people. They know they're creating this out of thin air. Yeah, but they believe he's guilty, so they justify it. All right, so closing arguments um, and then Strang and Buting talk to the parents and they kind of lay out the math to them. We got six counts down to three, the original three, but if we lose one, if we lose number one, and nothing else is going to matter because he's going to be in prison for life. That's right. And then the episode ends. Yeah. So, Jamie, let's go back and see what Mr. Moore, Stephen Moore, says um, about this episode. So he says, number one, remember the three things. Number one, he says, based on what I know at this point, I cannot help but come to the conclusion that the Toyota key was planted in that room by Link. So this is an FBI guy, retired FBI guy, saying this. I'm sorry, FBI guy says, Toyota key was planted in that room by Link, Coburn, or Remaker. And Mm -hmm. my belief is that Link is the most likely candidate. I agree. Number two, he says that evidence was planted does not automatically make Stephen Avery guilty of murder, nor does it clear him of murder. As I have said many times, the police in different jurisdictions have helped, with quotes around it, the conviction of guilty men as well as innocent men. Just because the police are willing to plant evidence doesn't make the suspect innocent. It might make him legally problematic, though. It might make convicting him legally problematic, however. Mm-hmm. And number three, the claim that Manitowoc Sheriff's Office was uninvolved, was an uninvolved, uninterested party, is a sham. Right. That's right. Yeah, it's um, it's horrifying, honestly. And I appreciate um, Mr. Moore for um, introducing that thought, because it's something that hadn't occurred to me, that... Uh, you know, just because the police try to frame this guy and plant evidence that it doesn't make him innocent. Now, I don't believe he committed this crime, but it's it's interesting to have that thought. You know, just just for the sake of 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 having um, a new way to look at it. Um, you know, it, it's it's interesting. We can use this guy again for 8, 9, and 10 to get his take on it. But if I remember correctly, Jamie, I think he believes Stephen did commit this crime. And, mm. and one of the things he uses is that the way people act when they're asked a question and they say... Okay. Mm. They, try, they try to blame it on somebody. Yeah, so, they explain why. They, they yeah. say, no, I didn't do that. Here's what probably happened is what probably happened is blah, 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 and they over-explain. Right, right, right. And he thinks yeah. Stephen d- d- does that. Yeah, y- yes. And I remember you talking about that. I just didn't know that it was more um, that you were talking about. But yes, I mean, um, you know, I I understand him saying that. I just, I, I don't know if that's necessarily always the case. You know, if, um, I don't know if I would say, oh, maybe somebody did something, but for me, if and I have been in situations where I've been accused of something I didn't do, you know, I have thought, you know, well, you know, it was probably that person, or it seems like it could be, you know, that person, or th- this person had a reason to do something like this, you know. Um, so I just don't know that I really buy that 
um, that that's the only instance in which a person who's, you know, would try to look for another way to explain whatever's happened. Yeah, the only reason I would tend to believe this guy, uh, I at least believe that he thinks he's right, is that he's got no stake in the game, and he's probably seen thousands of incidences of this type of thing, and he's got, like, just, just experience. Yeah, I agree with you, um, but that that part of it, uh, I don't, I don't put much stock in just because I know from my my own personal experience that I have done the same thing when I know it's not something that I had anything to do with, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. One time somebody in my family accused me of stealing from them and I've never stolen anything, stolen anything in my life. And, um, you know, so I know it wasn't me. And at the time that it happened, I was saying, well, okay, so, you know, who had access to the house and who, you know, um, would have gone there and, you know, what time and what day and, you know, and everything. And so, you know, I was trying to find, you know, fight, figure out who actually did it because I knew it wasn't me. And, you know, so when I think about that, you know, if there were somebody, you know, nearby listening, you know, who, if more were there, maybe he would think that I was guilty. You were kind of like the fugitive, Jim. You had to go find the one-armed man to... to... <laughs> That's right. <laughs> to prove your innocence. Uh-huh. All right, Jamie, next week is The Great Burden, Episode 8. We got 8, 9, and 10, and we're done with this, Making a Murderer. I heard some stuff. I don't know the real facts on this, but I heard Stephen has a new lawyer, a woman, and I heard she's making some great strides towards pounding this case back open. Yeah, isn't she the woman with the Innocence Project? Could be, like I said, I don't know all the details. But maybe we can dig in a little deeper and get that info for next episode. Yeah, let's do that. All right, Jamie, I'm going to pimp a little bit, too. We do another podcast called The Americans. And our friends Mike and Michelle on their tribal rant do The Americans. So what we're going to do is do a couple movies that we talked about in our last podcast. Um, We're going to review those movies with Mike and Michelle. So look for those on our Americans feed. And we'll probably do those sometime next week. Sounds like a plan. Movies about World War, not World War II, movies about the nuclear interaction between Russia and the U.S. Right. And that had a tie to that episode of The Americans because they um, showed little um, snippets of the movie. Um, what is it called? The, the Day, Day After. A- yeah, The Day After, which was a, um, a disaster movie about a nuclear holocaust. So, yeah, so these movies, the first one we're going to do is Fail Safe, is about the accidental... Um, release of firing nuclear arms towards each other by the U.S. and Russia and what happens. Sounds fascinating. And um, last night you talked um, really, you spoke really highly of um, both of the movies that we're going to watch and uh, record about, and I'm really excited. So check that out on West Coast Project and ultimately probably on Tribal Land. I'm sure Mike and Michelle posted too. Yeah. All right, Jamie, so I'll see you next time on The Great Burden. How do people reach you in the meantime? I'm on Twitter, and I'm at WordGirly. And I'm at Scathing Tweets. So until then, we'll talk to you next time, Jamie. All right. Bye, Mike. Bye.